Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories number 29 for mid-February 2024. Move and Laurel Hill. Ninth episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, a historic and active cemetery in Bala Kidwood, Pennsylvania. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and volunteer podcaster. Laurel Hill West opened in 1869 across the river from its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill East, in Philadelphia. It's more than twice as big as Laurel Hill East, has a totally different feel and a strikingly different population. Like Laurel Hill East, it is open 365 days a year. Now from 7 until 5 p.m. And it's going to go back to 7 till 7 in just a month or so, though. There's lots of parking at the business office just off Belmont Avenue or at the conservatory in the Bell Tower. If you enter from Belmont, follow the road past the second gate with the white line in the middle to get to the Bell Tower. Another possibility, just come in while you're walking the Kidwood Trail. Your best bet for public transportation, the R6 to Maniunk, a bus to the Wissahickon Transportation Center on Ridge Avenue, and then cross the Schuylkill River. You'll be leaving Philadelphia proper, but come on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, walk up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance across from the Pet Cemetery. It's probably about a half a mile walk from the bus stop. And uphill. <laughs> This 29th episode of Biographical Bites from Bala is for mid-February 2024. It is delayed because of the research I did on this. In 1995, the city of Philadelphia did something unheard of in the United States. It dropped a bomb on one of its neighborhoods. The fire spread along Osage Avenue, destroyed more than 60 homes, and left 250 men, women, and children homeless. Three former MOVE members are interred at Nature's Sanctuary, the Green Natural Burial Section at Laurel Hill West. I will tell you about two of them, the Louise Leapart James and Laverne Leapart Sims. They were sisters to the acknowledged group leader, John Africa. But they left the organization before the conflagration. To tell their story, I must tell the story of John Africa, the formation of MOVE, and its frequent confrontations with neighbors and city officials in this month's episode of Biographical Bites from Bala, number 29, Move at Laurel Hill. It took me more than a week to start to write this script. 
I read two books about the organization Move and John Africa from cover to cover. I skimmed two other books as useful references. I read dozens of newspaper articles. I listened to a seven-hour podcast about the organization, and I watched numerous videos on YouTube. I even tried to cheat, and I asked the AI bot Copilot with GPT-4 to, quote, write me a 2,000-word summary of Move. The bot was smart enough to say, I'm sorry, but I cannot provide you with a 2,000-word summary of the 1985 move bombing in Philadelphia. That is a very complex and sensitive topic that requires more than a simple chat response. End quote. Once I started writing the script, I tried to cross-check everything that I could with newspaper articles and first-hand accounts. What normally would take two or three days to put together took more than a week, which is why your podcast was delayed by a day or two. Most of the multiple issues with the group move occurred before I first came to Philadelphia in the fall of 1985, but they were inescapable. In many ways, they still are. The story of what led an American city to drop a bomb on civilians in a neighborhood of row homes in 1985 is hard to shake, especially when you know that 11 people, six adults and five children died in the conflagration. It is an incident not easily put to rest. Even now, 38 years after the fact, there are still innumerable controversies surrounding Philadelphia and move. Laverne Q. Leapheart Sims and her sister Louise Leapheart James are interred in the Green Burial section of Laurel Hill West, Nature's Sanctuary. I will try very hard to tell their story as fairly as I can. The heart and soul of the move organization was a man who took the name John Africa. He was born Vincent Lopez Leapheart on 26 July 1931 at Philadelphia General Hospital. Vincent Lopez was a popular radio big band leader of the day. Vincent was the fourth child of Lenny May and Frederick Eugene Leapheart, who'd come up from Atlanta during the Great Migration. Frederick worked as a paper hanger and a handyman. He purchased a large house at 3714 Brown Street in West Philadelphia. It's tucked behind the Philadelphia Zoo, just a block or two from Mantua Avenue. It's an area that locals call the Bottom. Firstborn son Frederick Eugene Jr. came in 1926. But when he was 16 years old, he was shot and killed in an apparent case of mistaken identity. Eight other children grew to adulthood. Four more boys and four girls. The Leapheart house had no gas, so cooking was done on a big wood stove. There was no refrigerator in the house, so the Iceman was a regular visitor. A coal-burning furnace in the basement kept the Leapheart family relatively comfortable in the winter. They were deeply religious people, and they were regulars at the Metropolitan Baptist Church. At home and in the neighborhood, everyone called Vincent Benny a variation of Vinny. All the Leapheart children went to McMichael School, named for the former mayor and publisher Morton McMichael, who's interred in Section H at Laurel Hill East. If you've been to Lemon Hill in Fairmount Park, you've seen his massive statue. 
After five years in school, Vincent was having a hard time keeping up and was moved to a special school for children with learning disabilities. The E. Spencer Miller School was named for the man who succeeded Robert Sharswood as dean at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Miller is interred at Laurel Hill East in Section 14. In the language of the time, Vincent Leapart was considered orthogenetically backward, or OB, which children being children, they changed to oddball. Keeping attendance records was lax, so Vincent would skip school about as often as he would attend. He was deeply attracted to animals and vice versa. Stray dogs seemed to find him wherever he went. When a pet kitten named Tippy was run over by a car, Vincent, then about 10 years old, insisted on a funeral at which he delivered a eulogy in front of neighborhood children before the cat was buried in the backyard. Shortly after that, he replaced the kitten with one nearly identical, and he tried to convince his friends that this was Tippy in another of his nine lives. He carefully avoided stepping on insects and worms when he walked on the sidewalk. But the Leaphearts lived very close to the zoo. Vincent could actually see some of the caged animals through an upstairs window, and he was tormented by their condition. On summer nights, when the house windows were open, the unhappy sound of zoo animals would waft across the nearby railroad tracks and into the house, which deeply upset him. In September of 1950, Lenny May Leapart went to the hospital with pneumonia and unexpectedly died while an inpatient. Obviously, Frederick and the children were devastated. She was only 42 years old, and there were eight children in the house. Later, Vincent would blame the hospital for her death. Frederick took to drink. He started missing bill payments, and he could not keep the family together. So Vincent became a surrogate father to his younger siblings. Frederick outlived Lenny May by 22 years. He died in 1972. Vincent dropped out of school at 16. The next year, he was arrested for armed robbery and stealing a car. On 5 November 1952, even though he was barely literate, he had an IQ of 87 by the standardized tests of the day, he found himself a member of the U.S. Army in the midst of the Korean conflict. It was a common occurrence at that time for young men in constant trouble with the law to be offered a choice, join the Army or go to jail. Vincent was drafted. The podcast, The Africas vs. America, says he spent time as a prisoner of war in Korea, but was relatively unscathed by the experience. I cannot confirm that from any other source, that he was a prisoner of war. We do know that he never fired his weapon in anger, and later in life, when he dictated his war experience, he said, Panic and terror grip you like hot nails, tearing through thoughts of the mind like a bullet running for safety and into more shrapnel. With his honorable discharge on 21 October 1954, Vincent headed back to the neighborhood where he developed the reputation of being a sharp-dressed ladies' man. Other family members complained about how much time he spent in the bathroom sprucing himself up. His younger brother, Alfonso, started to mirror his habits. One night, the two of them met a pair of sisters named Dorothy, whom everyone called Princess Dottie, and Fanny. 
Eventually, both couples would marry. Dottie and Vincent were both 29 years old when they wed in 1961. Despite his limited education and learning disabilities, Vincent headed to New York City to take classes in interior decorating, while Dottie stayed in Philadelphia. According to his sister Louise, Vincent was recognized as an accomplished jazz drummer in the Apple, and he jammed with Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Ornette Coleman, and others. But I find no record that he recorded with anyone. And he apparently never played drums again when he came home to Philly in the 1960s. While Vincent was gone, Dottie had started seeing a new type of minister, someone we might today consider New Age. And Vincent was initially put off by her diet, limiting her to fresh fruits, vegetables, and grains. But then he started to adopt a similar practice. In addition, they were unable to have children together. And twice, Dottie went to the police with a report of abuse after Vincent struck her. The marriage ended in divorce in 1967, and the two never saw each other again after May 1968. It was about this time that he realized his name was not reflective of who he was. He was okay with Vincent, but Liebhardt was a German name. Frederick Sr.'s father was German and a grandmother was Native American. Vincent saw the changes other restless African Americans were making. They ridded themselves of their slave names. Jazz pianist Frederick Russell Jones became Ahmad Jamal in 1950. Jazz horn player William Emanuel Huddleston became Youssef Latif at about the same time. Detroit street hustler Malcolm Little became Malcolm X in 1952. Cassius Marcellus Clay became Muhammad Ali in 1964. Ferdinand Louis Alcindor became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in 1971. So Vincent Lopez Lepart took a name that he thought was more fitting for the man that he wanted to be. He was now John Africa. It was also around 1970 that the newly renamed John Africa moved into a little row house at 3207 Pearl Street in Powelton Village, a polyglot neighborhood of blacks and whites, straights and gays, blue collars, professionals, all squeezed between Mantua and the campuses of the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel University. I talked more about Powelton Village in a recent podcast, All Bones Considered number 59, when I spoke about Winifred Harris, who was a community activist in that neighborhood. John Africa fit right in with the rest of the local eccentrics. He walked dogs for money. He sold horse meat as dog food. He was skilled as a roofer and a carpenter, and he sold carefully constructed desks. No two were alike. He adopted the dreadlocks of the Rastafarian religion, which were still an oddity at that time. He started to develop and preach his philosophy. It was a jumble of primitivism, anarchism, animal rights, vegetarianism, black power, anti-technology, and environmentalism. He did not believe that death was permanent, that people cycled when they died, and he hinted at reincarnation. People listened to his chaotic sermons and lumped him and move with various other black nationalist organizations that had sprung up at about the same time. 
One of his first recruits was a white graduate student named Donald Glassy, whose University of Pennsylvania thesis had been on the participation of the poor in decision-making in public housing projects. Glassy was so taken by John Africa's slowly developing philosophy that he took dictation from him until it filled a 300-page book called The Book, or The Guidelines. It laid out the tenets to Africa's anti-technology, back-to-nature views. Glassy is sometimes called co-founder of the newly developed principles. He later assured interviewers that 100% of what he wrote had been dictated by John Africa. In 1972, the year that his father died, John Africa declared that he was leader of the American Christian Movement for Life, which he shortened to MOVE. MOVE is not an acronym for anything. It is simply a representation of life. To be alive, you must move. He attracted more followers. Mostly they were the downtrodden, people who felt they'd been shortchanged by life. Despite being a rather small man, John Africa had developed a deep, booming voice to go with his charismatic personality. One reporter compared him to a Shakespearean actor. His home became a haven for people seeking personal peace, drug addicts, ex-convicts, lost souls. To become a member, you had to change your diet, swear off junk food and meat, and become and stay physically fit. Soon there were 40 people to do his bidding, including two of his sisters, Louise Leaphart James Africa and Laverne Leaphart Sims Africa, with her teenage son, Charles Shelton Sims, also known as Chucky Africa. As a newly formed family, they all adopted the new name. Despite his position as group leader, John Africa kept in the shadows, but his followers did what he told them. He sent them to disrupt talks by Jane Fonda or Buckminster Fuller, or to school board meetings. He sent them to conduct noisy demonstrations at the zoo to protest the caging of animals. They were just as likely to protest left-wing speakers as they were right-wing speakers. He gave them classroom education. Occasionally, when he sensed unrest, he let them have a D-Day, distortion day, and then they could break from their diet regimen and eat forbidden junk food to their heart's content. And when the people in the row house next door moved away, Move commandeered that house and made it their own. As Move grew, problems developed. More than a dozen dogs ran free in their house and yard. Neighbors were suddenly plagued by rats, cockroaches, and foul odors from human and dog excrement. Neighborhood children would awaken with flea bites, which had never been an issue before Move's arrival. They surrounded the headquarters with a stockade, and it became a compound. They were eccentric but peaceful neighbors at first, but their attitudes gradually became more militant. Palton village residents complained about the vermin, noises, and smells, but the city authorities said nothing they were doing broke laws. So Move got bolder. They started wearing military uniforms. They occasionally flashed weapons from the windows of the house or the front porch. MOVE had never declared itself a pacifist organization, but its emergence as a quasi-military group 
in the days of Black Panthers and similar organizations started to make people nervous. In late 1973, Africa and Grassley were ejected from their co-op on Pearl Street in Powelltown and acquired a house at 309 North 33rd Street. In this new location, MOVE members got even more hostile toward their neighbors. They started shouting threats and obscenities at people through bullhorns. When police were notified, they told the people being harassed that as long as the MOVE people just shouted, they could remain. When one of their neighbors suffered a heart attack after their harassment and died shortly thereafter, Move bragged about his death. It was about this time that John Africa's older sister, Louise Leapart James Africa, became a spokesperson for Move. She wrote an occasional column called On the Move that appeared in the opinions section of the Philadelphia Tribune, Philadelphia's black newspaper. Move acquired airtime on the University of Pennsylvania's FM station WXPN, but that program was short-lived. It is unclear who severed that relationship. When she was interviewed years later, Louise said, I am the type of person who's always looked for something that would help me to find justice. I was constantly seeking out people to follow. I followed in support of the Panther Party. I followed Angela Davis. I mean, I was just mesmerized by that woman. And as I continued to see nothing working in this political system for me, I continued to search. When I came across the teaching of John Africa, my search ended. On Sunday, 28 March 1975, something happened, although exactly what has never been confirmed. There was a party at the Powelton Village compound to celebrate the release of seven MOVE members after they'd served their time in jail for disorderly conduct and contempt of court. They arrived back home in a dilapidated school bus they had bought with a donation from the comedian Richard Pryor. The noise got out of hand, and once again the neighbors were forced to call the police. When the prowler arrived, they were met by an irate Chucky Africa, 14-year-old nephew of John and son of Laverne. We're sick and tired of you people. Leave us the blank alone. One of the officers told reporters that he was walking back to the car when a brick caught him in the back of the head. Move said the police attacked first. Within seconds, more bricks were flying, nightsticks were swinging, and when things calmed down, six cops were on their way to the hospital and six Move members were on their way back to jail. Now, here's where things really start to unravel. The next day, Merle Austin Africa held an impromptu press conference on the steps of the house and announced to the reporters that a murder had been committed. Janine Phillips Africa told how police had shoved her roughly to the ground on top of her infant son, Life Africa. The cops, she said, had stomped her as she lay there and in the process, crushed life as he lay beneath her. Reporter said, where's the body? The baby's body had been cycled. It was taken care of. He didn't have no fancy clothes. He didn't have no embalming. He was taken out in the country, put in a blanket, and left. This was in keeping with the beliefs of MOVE about natural burials, without embalming, cremation, caskets, or religious ceremonies. Four days later, 
Robert Africa called the Philadelphia Inquirer and told the paper to send two people to the compound that night for dinner and an announcement. A reluctant reporter and photographer went to Powelton Village and were forced to wait on the front porch in cold, damp weather. To their surprise, they were soon joined by city council members Lucian Blackwell and Joseph Coleman. Finally, they were ushered into the house and down a flight of steps to a basement lit by suspended candles. In honor of their guests and totally against the beliefs of move, the serving plates were piled high with fried chicken and corn on the cob, with bowls of potato salad, rice, and spinach, and watermelon for dessert. At another table, which was set for MOVE members, there was a plate of raw chicken legs. Before the dinner had finished, three men from the MOVE table came to the guest table and told the guests, come with us. They were led to the front room, also lit only by candles, and there on the floor, in a cardboard box, was the partially decomposed body of an infant. Robert Africa stood beside the box. Let all here be satisfied once and for all that the baby does exist. The attendees were in shock, but they agreed not to reveal what they had seen until Move broke the news a week later. In other words, city officials and members of the press had viewed what looked and smelled to be a dead baby and they did not report to the police or to the medical examiner. When the Inquirer reporter recovered from his initial shock, he snapped some pictures. After everyone had seen the evidence, the evening was over. Move said they took the body back into the countryside. Since Move didn't believe in government, the baby had not been born in a hospital and was not issued a birth certificate. Therefore, there was no proof that the baby had existed. Janine Phillips Africa claimed a murder took place, but now there was no body. Autopsy was against the beliefs of MOVE. To this day, there is no proof what happened, and the argument goes back and forth about police brutality versus an elaborate hoax. On 20 May 1977, MOVE made their intents known with a message to the city. Don't attempt to enter MOVE headquarters or harm MOVE people unless you want an international incident. We are prepared to hit reservoirs, empty hotels and apartment houses, close factories and tie up traffic in major cities of Europe. We are equipped, well-trained and experts in guerrilla tactics. We are not a bunch of frustrated middle-class college students, irrational radicals or confused terrorists. We are a deeply religious organization, totally committed to the principle of our belief as taught to us by our founder, John Africa. We are not looking for trouble. We are just looking to be left alone. The statement was signed with the chemical equation for nitroglycerin. This was enough to get the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms involved, the ATF. Now, the same day that this message was released, a MOVE member who had left the compound was arrested by Philadelphia City Police while carrying a shotgun, which was traced to the white graduate student, Donald Glassy. When police arrested Glassy, 
and told him of a potential five-year prison term for falsifying federal firearms forms, Glassy went over to the other side, and he became a witness against MOVE. One of the first things Glassy admitted was that John Africa had apparently abandoned his commitment to nonviolence and was turning into something of a weapons freak. He was also convinced that MOVE members would kill or cycle if commanded to do so by Africa. MOVE had accumulated bombs, which Glassy helped the ATF gather. He took them to 20 bombs, a pile of bomb parts, two shotguns, eight high-powered rifles, and a handgun. And on the same day, 20 May 1977, sheriff's deputies went to 3301 Powelton Avenue, which was around the corner from the main MOVE compound, but they were there to evict a MOVE member. Other MOVE members thought the deputies had come to evict them from the headquarters compound, and more than a dozen of them stormed out of the house to a platform they had erected in the yard behind the eight-foot barricade. The t-shirts and cutoffs they usually favored had been exchanged for khaki coveralls and berets, and they were all armed. Delbert Africa wore a 45 caliber pistol and a holster strapped to his waist. Others brought out rifles, sawed-off shotguns, clubs, and carbines, and stacked them on the porch like soldiers setting up an armed camp. This demonstration lasted for nine hours, all of it filled with shouting and obscenities from Moves bullhorns. A crowd of about 300 gathered, and then 200 heavily armed police officers showed up. And at 10.30 in the evening, Moves suddenly pulled all its weapons back indoors, and there they stayed. The police looked at each other and gradually dispersed. When ATF went to arrest John Africa, he had disappeared into the underground network that MOVE had been building over the years in Virginia and New York. He went to Rochester, New York, and purchased some property under the name of Vincent Lee Fart, spelled P-H-A-R-T, a clever play on his old slave name, Vincent Lee Fart. John Africa stayed in New York for a few years. Now, back in Powelton Village, 1977-78 saw escalation of tensions among MOVE and its neighbors and the city. A news report showed that the standoff had already cost the city a quarter of a million dollars in police overtime and other expenses, and that more than 250 MOVE-related trials had completely clogged the courts, delaying another 2,000 criminal cases. On 1 March 1978, former police commissioner and current mayor Frank Rizzo took a stance. After 10 months of taunts and threats, Rizzo announced that the move quarters would be blockaded and that the city would no longer permit people to approach the house with food or other supplies. City water was shut off. If move would not leave, Rizzo would starve them out. Rizzo wasn't called the toughest cop in America for no reason. The city sent negotiators to talk with MOVE people, and they reached an agreement. MOVE would turn over all the weapons and allow a search of the house, and more importantly, MOVE agreed to desert the house by 1 August 1978. When the police went to confiscate the weapons, there were no problems, although all of the weapons were inoperable. Warrants were served, 
members politely went to police headquarters in Center City for fingerprinting and mugshots, and they were actually driven back to the compound by police, who picked up another member and took them to the roundhouse for booking. But when August 1st came and went without move leaving, Rizzo was furious. He was not a man accustomed to compromise. He felt that he had been made to be the fool. The same morning, when members who had been released on their own recognizance did not come to court, a judge signed arrest warrants and ordered Philadelphia police to make the arrests within 10 days. After much preparation, the Philadelphia police were ready. And on Monday, 7 August 1978, a lot of cops called home to say they would not be home for dinner that night. Sometime after midnight, 8 August, police assembled in a vacant lot that used to be Philadelphia General Hospital, more than six blocks from their target. A yellow dump truck from the Department of Streets had been converted into a makeshift armored personnel carrier. Someone had managed to slip into the MOVE compound to warn them of what was about to take place. Dozens of heavily armed, specially trained police in riot helmets and flak jackets moved into place and awaited a signal. The MOVE loudspeaker came on at 3.50 a.m. with the words, Testing, Testing murderers! Testing. Testing! Neighbors started to pull out chairs to sit and watch what was going to happen. The police read the court order. You have three minutes to come out with your hands extended above your heads. The response came from Delbert, Africa. You're going to have to carry us out of this house. We're not walking out. Five minutes later, step two was read. You have not surrendered. We are proceeding to tear down the fence. Tow trucks removed parked cars and tried to move people away from the fence. And as the sun started up over the horizon at 5.30 a.m., a bulldozer came off a large trailer and started to take down the barricade around the house. A man on the porch bared his chest and screamed, Come on, kill me! I don't have a weapon! As the bulldozer moved forward over the destroyed fence to the house, the people on the porch scrambled back inside. Chucky Africa came on over the loudspeaker. Who's crazy? Tell the world Rizzo killed black babies for a health violation. You think we're crazy? We ain't crazy. Every day it's been raining. Where do you think that rain's coming from? Negotiators were brought in. They were met with shouts and cursing. A cherry picker moved into position and ripped away at the boarded-up windows, and soon the house looked like a bombed-out shell. Police could now look in, and they saw no one. All the people had headed down to the basement. And then, shortly after 7 a.m., a small red van from the SPCA appeared seemingly out of nowhere and stopped in front of the compound. The three people in the van totally ignored dozens of armed police officers behind them and apparently had no fear of the people in the house. They disappeared into the partially destroyed fortress with numerous crates and soon emerged with 12 dogs and 10 pups, which they loaded into the van and drove away, none the worse for the wear. At 7.55 a.m., a stakeout officer near the basement window shouted, They've got guns! They've got guns! Officer James Ramp was an aide to the stakeout captain. He was a Marine veteran who'd seen combat in World War II and Korea. 
He was joking with his co-workers when the muzzle of a gun emerged from a basement window. The police snipers on the roof raised their weapons. Firefighters turned on water cannons aimed at the basement windows. When they were turned off four minutes later, there were three pops heard, and a puff of smoke rose from the basement window. Get down! Get down! the police shouted. The air was filled with bullets as dozens of cops opened fire from the alleys and rooftops and barricades. When Jim Ramps saw one of his fellow officers go down, he ran to drag him to cover. Then Ramp went down. His riot helmet was thrown to one side, and blood was streaming from his mouth. After a mad scramble to get him to an emergency department, Jim Ramp was pronounced dead on arrival at Presbyterian Hospital. Two other police and three firefighters were also wounded. Women and children started emerging from the basement windows. The fire department used more deluge hoses, and some of the remaining dogs were seen swimming around in the basement. When Delbert Africa crawled out the side cellar window, his arms were spread wide in submission. He wore no shirt. Two of the police who met him had just loaded their dying friend into a vehicle, and they took out their rage on the unarmed Delbert Africa. After they dragged him to the street by his dreadlocks, they beat him with a rifle and helmet, kicked him numerous times in the head and the groin and over the kidneys, and they left him unconscious. One of the officers hit Delbert so hard that his shirt split open. As they savagely punched Delbert, They did not realize there was a newspaper photographer behind them at a window capturing their actions with both photographs and movies. When the police had cleared the house with smoke, gas, and water, they entered and discovered a small cache of weapons in the basement, including a carbine that forensic studies would later identify as the weapon that killed Officer Ramp. Then... The order was given, knock down the house. And before noon, the Victorian home had been demolished by the bulldozer. Police kept telling the crowd of about 300 spectators, go home. Their response was, we are home. Move members denied killing Ramp. They said the gun that killed him was planted in the basement, that he was killed by friendly fire and the house was then torn down to destroy any evidence. Mayor Rizzo expressed disappointment that there was no longer a death penalty, and he said, Put them in the electric chair. I'll pull the switch. Eleven people in the house were put on trial on 10 December 1979 in room 253 of City Hall for charges that ranged from simple assault to murder. Nine of them were tried as a group, Two of the women were tried as individuals. The group became known as the Move Nine. They waived their right to a jury trial, and they each pled innocent to all charges. Throughout the trial, the nine defendants were abrasive, loud, and disorderly. Many were ejected from the courtroom more than once. The scene reminded many people of the Chicago 7 trial of 1969. After 19 weeks of the circus-like atmosphere, the longest and most expensive trial in Pennsylvania history, the judge gave his verdict on 8 May 1980. Guilty on all charges, sentencing scheduled for 4 August. Then the judge showed no mercy. 
He snarled that since they considered themselves a family, they must have committed murder as a family, and he would sentence them as a family. And the Move Nine were each sentenced to 30 to 100 years for third-degree murder, just as if all nine had pulled the trigger. Merle Austin Africa died in prison in March 1998. Phil Africa died in prison in 2015. Mike Africa Sr. and Debbie Sims Africa were released in 2018. Janine Phillips Africa, Janet Holloway Africa, and Edward Goodman Africa got out in 2019. Delbert Hoare Africa was released in January of 2020, but he died of cancer five months later. Charles Shelton Sims Chucky Africa, who was 20 years old when incarcerated, was the last of the Move 9 to leave prison in February of 2020 after he'd spent more than 40 years in jail. He died of cancer in September 2021. When he was released, the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge 5 issued a statement. When days like this happen, our hearts ache for our fallen hero James Ramp and his family as they're re-victimized every time a MOVE member is released from custody. End quote. The three police officers who were captured in photographs pummeling Delbert Africa to unconsciousness were brought to trial early in 1981 on charges of aggravated and simple assault. Despite the photographic evidence of police brutality, the judge in charge of this case acquitted all three men without permitting the case to be decided by a jury. The reason he gave... Philadelphia is bleeding to death because of the move tragedy. No verdict will stanch the flow of blood. It can only be stopped by setting up a lightning rod. I will be that lightning rod. The judge was wrong. It did not stop. There was more to come. And in less than five years, one of the acquitted officers would be dead, shot in the face by his wife. Where was John Africa all this time? He'd started that branch of MOVE in Rochester, New York, where many of the problems of the Philadelphia branch of MOVE would be repeated. ATF had been tracking him down. He was captured in May 1981. He refused to be fingerprinted. That was against his religion. When he was first interrogated, he told the investigating officers that his name was Vincent Life and that he was one year old. He was brought back to Philadelphia in chains. John Africa's trial was the spring of 1981. Much to the surprise of many, he was a model defendant. He and his co-defendant, Alonzo Robbins Africa, chose to represent themselves in court, although there was an assigned attorney who stood by. Glassy was the star witness against him. John did not cross-examine him, although Robbins Africa hammered away at him. His opening question was, how does it feel to be a traitor? At the conclusion of evidence, John Africa gave his own closing argument, what was later called a bizarre sermon. I'm not a guilty man. I'm an innocent man. I didn't come here to make trouble or to bring trouble, but to bring the truth I'm fighting for the air that you've got to breathe, and I'm fighting for the water that you've got to drink. He rambled on. He broke into tears ten times during his summation. And despite a case that even 
Africa's backup attorney concedes was virtually flawless, the jury, after dragging out their deliberation for six days, acquitted both John Africa and Lorenzo Robbins Africa. The prosecuting attorney was stunned. It was the only case I ever lost as a prosecutor. It was also the strongest case I ever had. John Africa's parting words when he walked out of the courtroom, a free man, were, I whipped him. With their former headquarters demolished, Move needed a new home. In 1958, John Africa's older sister, Louise Leapart James, and her husband, Frank, had purchased a row house at 6221 Osage Avenue in predominantly black West Philadelphia, five houses in from 62nd Street to the east and Cobbs Creek Parkway just a few hundred feet to the west. They paid $8,500 for the property. It was a middle-class district where some of the residents had lived for 30 or more years. Following Louise's 1968 divorce, the property had become hers alone. Louise had been an early member of MOVE and even used the Africa surname, but she didn't like the changes she was seeing in her little brother Benny, who now held sway over a cult under his new name, John Africa. Despite her concerns about the direction of MOVE, Louise defended the organization every chance she got. Since the MOVE 9 had gone to prison, Louise had become de facto mother to their children in her home. So it was only natural that other family members join the household. With no real advance planning, suddenly 6221 Osage Avenue was the new home of MOVE. And before she knew it, Louise had at least a dozen adults and children living with her, and the number frequently shifted. But one of her new tenants was her brother, John Africa. And just as in the old Powelton Village headquarters 30 blocks away, tensions started to mount between Move and their neighbors, and the old problems returned. Soon, the windows were barricaded, and a stockade fence was built around the house. What concerned the neighbors most was the bunker, a man-sized sandbagged structure on the roof made of railroad ties, logs, and steel plates, where armed move members were often seen posted on guard. Then came the bullhorns and the speakers, and the area was under near-constant noise bombardment of anger and hate speech laced with profanities. In the fall of 1983, both male and female move members attacked a neighbor who had parked in what they thought was rightfully their parking spot. The neighbor was treated at a local hospital for bites on his face and groin. The Cobbs Creek neighborhood filed complaint after complaint with the city. They were assured that once Wilson Good was secure in office, things would change. Woodrow Wilson Good was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Public Administration who had risen from community activist to become the first black mayor of Philadelphia. The harassment of neighbors worsened, again forcing people to call the police frequently. The haranguing from the move compound was near continuous. On 10 August 1984, there was an article in the Philadelphia Daily News about the accelerating tension. Here's some quotes from the article. Mayor Wilson Good. 
We have talked about this among ourselves. We did not find any reason or basis or basis to, quote, make a move against move. Unless we have a legal cause, we have no right to take action against the group. The police department and city government from time to time have received information that caused us to deploy police officers in certain areas. I do not believe we should further discuss that. I will not disclose all that is involved because of public safety in the area. Police Commissioner Gregor Sandor said, There have been no major misdemeanors or major felonies at this time. There's been verbal harassment, which is a violation, but that has to be weighted in the context of the entire situation. We're saying there's just no major violation at this time. Move had met with Wilson Good dozens of times while he was managing city director. They were very disappointed that the new mayor had not aided them as they thought he had implied. Move was also under the false impression that Good would be able to free the Move 9 from prison. In an April 1985, Move announced from their bullhorns their intentions to kill the mayor or any other police officer who approached the secured house. On 1 May 1985, a group of the neighbors, spearheaded by the conservative Osage Avenue Block Association, conducted a well-attended and subsequently well-publicized press conference at which they announced their intention of taking matters into their own hands if Good and other officers did not take some kind of immediate action against MOVE. Because of MOVE, they claimed their stable, prized neighborhood was going to pieces. Less than two weeks later, they would see it reduced to a pile of smoldering rubble. Policy shifted. Instead of a group of harmless but loud and irritating vegetarian, animal-loving eccentrics who liked to play soldier, MOVE was now labeled a terrorist organization. Hard decisions had to be made by the city government, and a plan developed. On Mother's Day, 12 May 1985, police went to other occupants of the block and told them to leave because of an impending police action. They were instructed to take a change of clothing just in case, but they'd be back in their homes in 24 hours. Obviously, the neighbors were angered and confused, but faced with the prospect of arrest if they did not comply, the neighborhood emptied except for 6221. Early on Monday morning, 13 May 1985, the day after Mother's Day, police attempted to serve warrants for the arrests of four MOVE members signed two days earlier by Judge Lynn M. Abraham, who had also signed a search warrant. The warrants were for a mix of misdemeanors and felonies. It was an effort to get some of the members out of the neighborhood. Mayor Good made it a requirement that none of the officers who'd been involved in the 1978 shootout that killed one of their brothers should be involved in what was about to go down on Osage Avenue. Nonetheless, several of those officers from 1978 were present in the gathering assault force. At 5.35 a.m., Police Commissioner Sambor lay on his stomach in the doorway of 6218 Osage Avenue, directly across and only about 10 yards from the Move house. He extended a bullhorn and he shouted, Attention, Move! This is America! 
You have to abide by the laws of the United States. Sambor then spent the rest of the day supervising with an M16 slung over his shoulder. Police then used the bullhorn to announce the names of the four members who were to be arrested for illegal possession of explosives and terroristic threats. They gave them 15 minutes to surrender. Move refused. When police insertion teams started to enter the house from either side, shots rang from inside the house. And over the next hour and a half, Philadelphia police fired more than 10,000 rounds of ammunition into the row house and used explosives to blow holes in the walls. 16 cops were assigned high-velocity M16s. That's the primary weapon used by the infantry in Vietnam. 13 cops had 12-gauge shotguns with double-O buckshot. Two others were armed with 22 caliber rifles equipped with silencers. There were also BARs, Browning Automatic Rifles, 30-06 rifles with scopes and 357 magnums. Seven officers were equipped with Uzi submachine guns. There were two M60 machine guns and 145 caliber Thompson's machine gun, a Tommy gun. And just in case there was armor to be pierced, there were two 50 caliber machine guns and a 20 millimeter anti-tank gun. The guns stopped firing only when they ran out of ammunition and messengers were sent to the police academy shooting range to gather more ammo. By 10.40 a.m., the front of the house was destroyed, but the structure itself stood solid. When it became clear that police tactics had failed, Mayor Good announced during an afternoon televised press conference that the city would now take the house by any means necessary. Despite deluge hoses aimed through the basement windows, an estimated 640,000 gallons of water were used that day, the group would not budge. Police accessed the row houses next door and through holes drilled in the walls, tried to pump in tear gas. Move did not budge. The stalemate started to break about 3 p.m. when the high police brass met at 62nd at Osage. Chief Sambor declared it was time to blow a hole in the roof and wipe out that bunker in the process. He initially met some resistance from the others, but eventually the group reluctantly agreed with Sambor's plan. He had apparently felt that the best way to flush people out was to feed tear gas both from above and directly into the basement, which would force the occupants to flee through the front door for easy capture. In the meantime, family members of those trapped in the basement were summoned and brought to move headquarters to negotiate. They used bullhorns and emphasized the safety of the unknown number of children in the basement with the adults. No one who was huddled in the basement of 6221 Osage answered. Questions were later raised about why the children had not been taken into protective custody before the assault. It was the habit of the Move family to take the children to nearby Cobbs Creek Park every day to exercise and play at the same time, and then return to the compound at a set time. But the city later explained it did not have authority to take the children. After city officials considered as unfeasible the possibility of getting a crane with a wrecking ball down the narrow street, they came to the decision that plastics explosives would be necessary to breach the roof, 
and a member of the bomb squad was sent to pick up the necessary ingredients. What the explosions expert made was a satchel charge, similar to those used by sappers during the guerrilla warfare in Vietnam. At 5.25 p.m., almost exactly 12 hours after Police Chief Sambor's bullhorn challenge, a Pennsylvania State Police helicopter appeared and hovered about 60 feet above the roof of 6221 Osage Avenue. Movies from that day show that Lieutenant Frank Powell of the bomb squad leaned out of the chopper and hurled a green canvas bag toward the roof below. Inside the bag was Tovex, also known as TR2, a blasting agent that had been developed by the DuPont Corporation for use in underground mining operations. It also contained more than three pounds of the plastic explosive C4, which is what we used to activate the infamous Claymore mines in Vietnam when we were setting up perimeter security in the field. Sometimes we'd use some lit C4 to heat our canned rations in the field, as it burns fiercely without danger of explosion unless a blasting cap is used, although the fumes are considered toxic. The ambient temperature was 82 degrees Fahrenheit, the humidity 60%, and the wind was out of the southwest at 20 miles per hour. When the bomb detonated 43 seconds after it was dropped, it threw off a 7,200-degree Fahrenheit wave of heat, which melted the roof tar and sent wood and metal shrapnel in all directions. Glass windows half a block away were shattered. The conflagration that followed has been described numerous times in books and magazine articles and documentaries. After literally pouring hundreds of thousands of gallons of water into the house all day, the fire hoses were not used now that the house was actually on fire. As the fire gained force, the fire commissioner asked the police commissioner, what do you want to do about the fire? Sambor's answer was, let it burn. The fire gained momentum. Soon the connected houses next door were also on fire. At 6.26 p.m., the entire move house was engulfed in flames. At 6.39 p.m., the roof bunker collapsed into the house. And at 6.58 p.m., the entire front wall of the house fell inward. Anyone who left the house now would have to do so through the back door that led to a heavily guarded alley. Finally, between 7 and 7.15 p.m., children and adults tried to make their way out of the back of the house. They were met with gunfire and forced back inside. People inside the house were yelling and screaming, We want to come out! We want to bring the children out! Gunfire forced them back into the inferno. Finally, an adult, Ramona Africa, and a child, Bertie Africa, made their way toward safety. But Bertie slipped and fell in the mud, which had been created by the day's earlier deluge. A white police officer named James Bergeyer saw him go down and immediately ran forward to try and rescue him, despite the pleading of his partner that it might be a trap. Bergeyer grabbed the naked burnt child under his arm and scooped him out of danger, but not before the rubber in the soles of his shoes had started to melt. Bergheyer became an outcast among his fellow officers, and he retired just a few years later with a disability for post-traumatic stress disorder. Ramona Africa was captured and arrested. 
she was the only adult survivor, and later she stood trial for riot and conspiracy and served seven years in prison. The fire, unchecked by water, was out of control. By the time the fire department turned its hoses back on, it was spreading to the other 16 connected houses on either side of 6221 and to the 22 houses which faced Pine Street across the alley and even across Osage Avenue to the 22 houses on the other side. When the damage was tallied, more than 60 houses had been destroyed and 250 people no longer had a home. And in the debris at 6221 Osage, the remains of six adults and five children were found, although they were burnt so badly that it took months to identify them. At least one of the victims may have been killed by gunfire before being consumed by flames. One of the adults was identified as Vincent Leaphart Africa. He was 54 years old. The other adults were Raymond Foster Africa, age 50, Conrad Hampton Africa, age 36, Frank James Africa, nephew of Vincent Leaphart Africa and son of Louise James, Rhonda Harris Ward Africa, age 30, mother of Bertie Africa, Teresa Brooks Africa, age 26, the children were Katricia Tree Dotson Africa, 15, and Zanetta Dotson Africa, 13. These sisters were the daughters of Consuela Dotson Africa. Phil Phillips Africa, 12, son of Janine Phillips Africa and William Phillips Africa. Janine was also the mother of the purported infant who'd been killed in the 1977 police raid. Delicia Orr Africa, 12 daughter of the jailed Delbert Orr Africa and Janet Holloway Africa, and Tommaso Boo Lavino Africa, nine, son of Sue Lavino Africa. Their initial cause of death was recorded as accident. After the federal investigation a few years later, the medical examiner amended the death certificates and changed the manner of death to homicidal violence. Louise Leapart James, a four foot eleven powerhouse, had been outside her home much of the day on 13 May as the disaster unfolded and she agonized over the fate of her brother John and son Frank trapped in the inferno. She had left the organization late in 1984, but the title of the house was still in her name. She'd been living with her sister Laverne Sims, who had also left Move. When John's and Frank's remains were finally identified weeks later, Louise had to find a place where they could be interred naturally. Remember, Move did not believe in embalming or coffins or, ironically, cremation. She found a cemetery in White Marsh Township, Montgomery County, that met her needs, and that is where John and Frank rest today. The city rebuilt houses for those who chose to stay. The houses were problematic, to say the least. One of the old residents said of her new home, they're cute little doll houses made out of balsa wood and crazy glue. The new owners immediately complained that the roofs leaked with every rain. After much bickering back and forth, in 2000, 
15 years after the fire, 37 former Osage Avenue homeowners each took a $150,000 buyout. On 13 May 1987, two years after the catastrophe, Louise Leapart James, who no longer called herself Africa, returned to the Osage neighborhood with two of her sisters and three other women. They recited the move creed with clenched fists in front of the new house at her old address. They then shouted obscenities and accusations at her former neighbors, calling some of them by name. She said, You got blood on your hands and blood on your heads. Your conscience ain't going to let you sleep at night. And she threatened to come back to the house every year on the same day. In December 1988, a story in the Philadelphia Daily News told of a lawsuit that James had filed in which she demanded the city give her the rebuilt house at 6221 and at least $375,000 in damages. James had already accepted $2,280.99 for the land from the Redevelopment Authority in October 1987. Although she was not living in the house at the time of the fire, the neighbors still blamed Louise for bringing move into the neighborhood. In June 1996, a federal jury found the city of Philadelphia liable for the fire that killed the 11 people and destroyed 61 houses. After nine days of deliberations, the jury said the city used excessive force and violated Move's constitutional protections against unreasonable search and seizure when they dropped the bomb from the helicopter. The eight-member jury ordered the city to pay $500,000 each to Ramona Africa, Laverne Sims, and Louise James. In a novel punishment, the police commissioner and the fire commissioner were ordered to pay a dollar a week each to Ramona, Laverne, and Louise for 11 years. One year for each person killed. During the trial, Ramona and the sisters had turned on each other, each blaming the other for the deaths of so many family members. Louise Leapart James died in December of 2019. She was 90 years old, and through the final years of her life, that house on Osage was never far out of mind. From her hospital bed, her grandson, Mike Africa Jr., who was born in prison to one of the Move Nine, says she would insist she wanted that house back. When she died, she was interred in the green burial section of Laurel Hill West Cemetery, Nature's Sanctuary, just the way she wanted to be. And on 12 May 2023, Louise's grandson, Mike Africa Jr., bought the property at 6221 Osage Avenue. Louise and Vincent's sister, Laverne Sims, was born in 1936. She was mother of two of the Move Nine, Debbie Sims Africa and Charles Sims Chucky Africa. She also had three other children. Like her sister Louise, she had become a member of MOVE, but left when her brother's teachings veered from her own beliefs. In May 2010, a newspaper article said she was thought to be living in Springfield, Massachusetts, but the phone had been disconnected. Laverne died on 14 October 2010. She was 74 years old. She was interred at the Green Burial section of Laurel Hill West, 
nature sanctuary. Ramona Johnson Africa, born in 1955, is still alive, and after she served her prison term, she continues to spread the creed of MOVE. She's a vocal advocate for social justice, environmentalism, and animal rights. She also speaks at various events and forums to share her story and raise awareness about the issues that MOVE stands for. She preaches against police brutality, war, and oppression. Ramona continues this activism even as she battles lymphoma and other health complications from post-traumatic stress disorder, according to a GoFundMe page. Birdie Africa was claimed by his father, and he reclaimed his birth name, Michael Moses Ward. He grew up with his new family, but in 2013 they went on a leisure cruise where he tragically accidentally drowned in a hot tub when no one else was around. He was 41 years old. He's buried at Northwood Cemetery on West Oak Lane. In 2005, a federal judge presided over a civil trial brought by residents seeking damages for having been displaced by the widespread destruction following the 1985 police bombing. A jury awarded them $12.83 million from the city of Philadelphia. On 12 November 2020, the City Council of Philadelphia passed a resolution which apologized, quote, for the decisions and events preceding and leading to the devastation that occurred on May 13, 1985, end quote. The council established, quote, an annual day of observation, reflection, and commitment to remember the MOVE bombing. In 1985, the Philadelphia City Medical Examiner's Office had given burned human remains found at the Move House to the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology for verification that the bones were those of 14-year-old Tree Africa and 12-year-old Delicia Africa. The bones, which the Move family thought had been properly buried, were later used as part of an online forensic course called Real Bones Adventures in Forensic Anthropology. They were used as a case study. The remains were kept in a cardboard box in storage for decades and studied by Alan Mann, a professor at Penn, and Janet Monge, the curator of the Penn Museum. When Mann transferred to Princeton University in 2001, he reportedly took the remains with him. In April 2021, the Penn Museum and the University of Pennsylvania apologized to the Africa family for allowing human remains from the Move House to be used in research and training. And the bones were returned to the Move family. On 13 May 2021, the 36th anniversary of the tragedy, Philadelphia Health Commissioner Thomas Farley resigned when it was revealed that he had ordered the cremation of another set of victims' remains without notifying or obtaining permission from the families of the deceased or even releasing the names of the deceased. The day after his resignation, the purportedly cremated remains were found in a dark storage area in a box labeled MOVE. The remains were returned to the family. When people 
talk about government excess in handling troublemakers and others who function outside what are considered the limits of normal. I think the first two things that pop to mind are Ruby Ridge in 1992 and the Waco siege standoff of 1993. Move happened almost a decade before those things happened. When people talk about the filming of the beating of Rodney King in Los Angeles in 1991, remember that the brutal beating of Delbert Africa by police occurred 13 years earlier. If you're ever walking on the 63rd Street sidewalk next to Cobbs Creek in southwest Philadelphia, maybe you're on your way to visit Mount Moriah Cemetery, look for the blue sign that was placed by the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission in 2017. It reads, On May 13, 1985, at 6221 Osage Avenue, an armed conflict occurred between the Philadelphia Police Department and MOVE members. A Pennsylvania State Police helicopter dropped a bomb on MOVE's house. An uncontrolled fire killed 11 MOVE members, including five children, and destroyed 61 homes. Move was a tragedy that we still live with. And the chatbot was right about being it impossible to explain move in 2,000 words. I have just given you more than 9,400 words, and it feels like I barely scratched the surface. Thanks for listening. The March 2024 episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 60, is for Women's History Month. Beatrice Fenton is a sculptor who created the sundial in Rittenhouse Square, and she was painted by Thomas Aikens when she was a young woman. Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, another Aikens subject, was great-granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin and was a 19th-century feminist who helped make the Centennial Fair of 1876 a huge success. Anna McGee left more than a million dollars in her will to establish a rehabilitation hospital that today bears her name. Plus, I hope to spend a few minutes talking about Seraph Deal, the woman credited with discovering underarm deodorant. In Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories number 30 from mid-March, I will talk about feminist activist, beauty queen, and police detective Grace Nottage Nicholas who led a very full life. I remind you, there are self-guided tours available for both cemeteries. For Laurel Hill East, just download the app. For Laurel Hill West, you'll find it with your podcast. There's a walkthrough from the Kidwood Trail entrance to Pencoid and another in the opposite direction. If you do the round trip, it's about two hours of stopping at Stones, peeping in mausoleums, and hearing about nearly 100 people who helped make Philadelphia what it is today. All Bones Considered and Biographical Bites from Bala are mostly researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, volunteer tour guide, and podcaster for both cemeteries. You can reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. The theme song, Names at Peace, is by local artist James Harrow. Maybe, just maybe, I will see you on a tour. Stay safe, stay well. Okay, if you couldn't tell, the bibliography on this one is a monster. 
the one that I recommend, the book that you probably should read if you want to know more about Move, which seems to be pretty level with the way that it talks about things. It's called Let It Burn. It was written by Michael Boyette and Randy Boyette, published by Quadrant Books in 1989. It is maddening that there is no index in this book. I have to go through page by page to find out the numbers. Take copious notes what I'm reading and then uh, go through page by page what I'm looking for something. But I think that's the best book. Another one that leans toward Move is called Burning Down the House, Move in the Tragedy of Philadelphia. John Anderson and Hilary Hevenor, H-E-V-E-N-O-R. This was copyright 1987, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company, New York and London. Does have an excellent index. One that is more or less hagiography, as you would expect, is by Louise Leaphart James. It's called John Africa, Childhood Untold Until Today. I think she had it privately published. No, there we go. Ex Libris LLC. 2013 is the copyright date on that book. And then the fourth book, which you can actually find free online to borrow, although you cannot download it. It's called Attention Move, This is America. Margot Harry, 1987. Banner Press, Chicago. Again, find it on the, in the online archives. Uh, what is it? Archive.net. That is the books. The articles? Lots and lots of newspaper articles. The ones that I liked the best, that were most helpful. Uh, one is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, January 12th, 1986, called Who Was John Africa? by Craig R. McCoy. Craig McCoy followed Move from the very beginning until he retired from the Inquirer a couple of months ago. Um, I sent him an email. I did not hear from him, um, but it, he just kept on top of this story for almost 40 years. And the Who Was John Africa is a really, really good story. From the James Madison Undergraduate Research Journal, this is Move, Philadelphia's Forgotten Bombing. Charles Abraham of James Madison University. Yeah, Volume 7, Issue 1 of the James Madison Undergraduate Research Journal. Gene Demby, where did he write this? Did he write this for WHYY? I forget where he wrote this. I found it online. It's called I'm from Philly, 30 years later. I'm still trying to make sense of the Move bombing. Now, newspaper articles, I'm not going to tell you what they were. I read dozens of newspaper articles. I listened to many podcasts. The podcast I'm going to recommend, as imperfect as it is, it's called The Africas Versus America. It's done by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And the reason that I'm concerned about it. I mean, the, the guy who did the podcast did a beautiful job. He actually got Wilson Good on the phone and talked to Wilson Good for, I don't know how long. 
He, he's got many, many minutes of good talking. He also talked to many of the other principals. He spent a lot of time with Mike Africa Jr. The problem is he passes on some stories that I can't verify, like the one about uh, Vincent Leapart being a, a prisoner of war in Korea. Um, what was the other one that I couldn't verify? Off the top of my head, I don't remember. But there was another one that I tried to verify, and I didn't have any luck. This is an amazing story. There are documentaries on YouTube. The one that I recommend is the one that was put together by the Philadelphia Inquirer. They did a beautiful job. They interviewed the principals. They edited it all together. If you are going to do research on MOVE, and there's plenty more to be done. There are hundreds of cubic feet of material in the archives at Temple University, the, the Charles Library there, the archives. I was there just on a general visit about a week ago, and they have become the repository for everything MOVE, both written and filmed. So, when it comes time for you to do your research on MOVE, you know where to go, Temple University. Okay, thanks for listening, and I will be back in a couple of weeks with more stories from Laurel Hill. Stay safe, stay well.